Hey, this is Ken Finnan from Capital Advantage Tutoring. It's my job to get you to pass the SIE exam. Join me here and on YouTube as we cover all the investment risks. We're going to go through systematic, unsystematic, portfolio strategies, and hedging. So let's go. Okay, guys, so let's start with investment risk, okay? So there's two main types. There's systematic and non-systematic. So let's start with systematic. Systematic risk is non-diversifiable. It's like the whole thing. You can't diversify your way out of it. Maybe you can do options or something, but you can't really get out of it. So non-diversifiable systematic risk is like market risk. What does that mean? So if you buy a bunch of stocks, like if you buy one stock, well, if that company shits the bed, well, then you're losing money. So what you do is you diversify that away, which we'll get to. But let's say you want a bunch of stocks and the market, like March 13th of the pandemic, 2020, the market dropped a thousand, a thousand points. No matter what stock you had, whether it's Amazon, Google, IBM, any company that you had, it dropped because the whole market dropped. So that you can't diversify that away because the whole market shit the bed. So market risk is when the whole market drops, everything is market risk. Okay. Now, what they do bring up is beta. So what we're doing is we're measuring this risk. So beta is how much your portfolio or stock moves with the market. So if you have beta of one, it's usually the um, S&P 500 we're talking about. But beta is beta is how much it moves with the market. So let's talk about that. So if you have a beta of one, that means you move with the market. It's a multiplier. If you have a beta 0.5, you move half as much as the market, same direction. If you have a beta of zero, you don't really move. So if you have a beta of 1.5 and the market goes up 10%, you're going to go, your portfolio should go up 1.5% times that, 1.5 times that. So if the market goes up 10, 1.5 times 10, you should go up 15%. That's your expected return. If the market goes down 10% in the same scenario, 1.5, you should go down 15%. So a beta is a measure of volatility. If you have a positive beta, you're going to move the same direction, and that's a multiplier. So if, if you have a beta of 0.5, the market goes up 10, you're going to go up 5, half of it. Now, if you have an inverse beta, like a negative beta of 1, for every point the market goes up, you're going to go down a point. So if the market goes up 10, you'll go down 10. If you have a negative 1.5, the market goes up 10, you'll go 1.5 times, 1.5 times the 10 negative. So you go negative 15. Hope that helps. Interest rate risk is basically for anything that's a fixed income, whether it's preferred or bonds, even CMOs have them, anything that pays you a fixed income over time. What's interest rate risk? We did talk about it back in the bond section, but let's do it again. If you have a 5% bond that pays you 50 bucks a year, if interest rates in the economy rise to six or seven or eight, that means new bonds issued apart are going to be paying 60, 70, 80, which is better than yours. So your bond is less attractive. Okay, so your bond will be less attractive, so the price will drop. That's why. That's what interest rate risk is. As rates go up, the bond prices go down. Okay, so we can try to diversify in bonds. We can buy different issuers. We can buy different coupon rates. We can buy different maturity dates and geographic locations, all that stuff. But that still doesn't actually get us rid of interest rate risk. It uh, adjusts it a little bit, like short-term bonds have less interest rate risk in long-term, stuff like that. But you still always have interest rate. It's really not diversifiable. Again, that's why it's under the 
non-systematic or the systematic. Okay, so duration is how volatile how volatile your stock is compared to interest rate movements. So if interest rates move a lot, move, and your bond moves a lot, as has long duration. So we've talked about this before. Long-term bonds have long duration, which means very volatile. And low-coupon bonds or low-price bonds have long duration because they are more volatile to the market. Okay, so interest rate inequities. Let's for the most part, they don't really they don't go together, but there are some stocks like preferreds have interest rate risk and all that. Utilities, which are very highly highly leveraged. So if interest rates go up, utilities will kind of be hurt a little bit along with preferreds. But a lot of times buying stocks in equities is not gonna have, you're not gonna have interest rate risk. I just always go that way. If the, if you see what risk does a stock have, interest rate risk is pretty much the last one you're gonna pay. Okay. So we also have inflation risk or purchase and power risk. That's the fact that as you move along, do you remember when you were a kid, it maybe cost you five or $6 to go to the movies, so you're 20 bucks, but you and your friend and some popcorn, now the 20 bucks you're going by yourself, big loser, okay? So inflation risk and purchase and power risk mean that your money, money now is worth more than money later. So as you move along, money buys less and less things. So if you have a fixed income portfolio, like a fixed annuity or a bond or preferred, you're getting the same amount of money every year, but costs are going up. So that money is going to buy less and less every year. Event risk. That's like something like 9-11, a pandemic. Those are kind of unprepared. You can't do anything about that. But again, that's a great example. The pandemic happening in March, all the stocks dropped. People lost jobs. They shut down the economy. They shut down the whole world. That's event risk. Okay, I call non-systematic risk, they call it unsystematic risk. This is diversifiable risk. This is risk that you can diversify away. So let's start with alpha. It's the first letter in the alphabet. Let's start with alpha. Alpha is basically measuring the risk to particular companies. So I always think of it this way. So the risk of alpha is twofold. One, if you're a portfolio manager, are you adding some value? Remember we talked about beta only minutes ago. Beta is how much you move with the market and it's ex your expected return. So market goes up 10%, you have a beta 1.5, you should do 15. But what if you do 17 or 13? The difference is your alpha. If you do better, you have you add a positive alpha. If you did worse, you had negative alpha. That's how it is. So it's like how different it is from a group of specific stocks. Another one to look at is say you have four pharmaceutical stocks. And, they, and three of them do 4%, but one does six. Well, that's alpha. That two points of alpha is what it's doing better than expected. Hope that helps. Business risk, the business that your company sucks. So you, that's what happens if you buy one stock. Okay, so if you buy one company, put all your eggs in Tesla. Okay, well, that's great. You could probably make a lot of money. But if you invest just in Tesla, and Tesla has a bad month, you lose all your money. So you want to diversify that out. Oh, we're back to that. You want to diversify away non-systemic risk, business risk, okay? Regulatory risk. That's more like there's a regulatory change. Mostly it's like if, a, you know, like think of the um, vaccines from this year or if you're watching this two years from now, back way back in 2020, the regulatory risk of these Pfizer and Moderna and all those, the regulatory risk is that the FDA comes back and says, you know what? It's not work. They deny the approval. So that's a lot of pharmaceutical companies and stuff like that have regulatory risk because they're waiting for government approval to be able to sell their product. That's different than legislative risk. They kind of people confuse that. 
regulatory risk is like a regulatory a regulation changing and or you not getting approved for something that's the best way legislative risk is like a new law that comes in so i always think of like um dpps and munis they're tax they have a lot of tax benefits so if they change the tax code that would be legislative risk and that would really hurt munis and dpps if they put everyone on a flat tax or lower taxes which they won't do so if they lower taxes that would hurt munis because remember, munis you buy, if you're rich, you buy a muni because you get tax breaks. But if there's less taxes, you don't need the muni as much. So that's legislative risk. Political risk. For the most part, political risk is anytime you, you invest outside the country because, hey, we're the greatest country in the world, right? So political risk is when you invest outside the country. It's not always, you could even say we have it here too a little bit. But for the most part, when you see political risk, think outside the country, like maybe a Cuba back in the 50s. All of a sudden, Castro came in and took over all the industries. So all those companies that had industry in Cuba, now Castro owns it. That's political risk. Okay. Liquidity risk. What's liquidity risk? The ability to sell what you have at a fair price. It's also called marketability. So liquidity and marketability go the same thing. So that's like common stock mutual funds are very liquid. ETFs are liquid in and out pretty easily. But like over-the-counter stocks or non-exchange stuff, not so liquid. Limited partnerships, DPPs, hedge funds, private placements, and direct investments in real estate have liquidity risk because you may not be able to get out of it very quick. So how do I do that? Maybe instead of buying direct investment in real estate, I buy a REIT, an exchange-traded REIT. Or instead of buying DPPs, I buy stocks, okay? So liquidity risk is the ability not to – the liquidity is being able to sell at a fair price. The risk is not being able to do that. Okay, opportunity risk or opportunity costs. It's like if you invested in this and I should have invested in that. Like if I bought like shares of IBM and I should have bought Tesla or I bought Tesla and I should have bought Bitcoin, all these things, that's opportunity costs. It's not really quantifiable, but the way to get rid of it is to invest in more things. Same thing with all these risks that are going about on the non-systemic size, non-systematic, is that you can diversify them away. You All these risks, the alpha, the liquidity, opportunity, all the market business risk, you can get rid of them or really, really reduce them by diversifying and expanding your holdings. Reinvestment risk. Okay. So reinvestment risk is the risk that as you're getting paid. So if you have a 5% coupon, you're getting paid 50 bucks every year, but interest rates drop to 2 or 3%. Well, you're getting that 50 bucks. And what do you have to do? You're going to reinvest it. But the only thing available is these lower rates. So reinvestment risk is a risk that as you're getting paid, the money you're going to reinvest is going to earn less because there's not the same rates available. Currency risk. Anytime you invest outside the country, you have exchange rate risk or currency risk because their currency isn't the same as ours, and they move up and down. There's variations in that. They move up and down, and you may make money, lose money, who knows. So currency risk is anytime you invest outside the country, you have currency risk. You do not have currency risk ever when you're investing inside your own country because your dollar is worth a dollar, okay? That doesn't change. But investing outside the country, whether it's Canada, Mexico, Sweden, Australia, whatever it is, their, their currency will go up and down and that will affect what we make. So that's currency risk. Capital risk is easy. You could lose all the part of your investment. How do you get rid of that? Diversify. All these things, diversify helps. Capital risk is just the risk that you're going to lose your money. Boom, that's it. Credit risk, that's like for bonds or debt. So it wouldn't really be for preferred, so it's not all fixed income, but anything like a bond 
or a muni bond, stuff like that, they would have credit risk or default risk. The fact that the issuer will not have the money to pay for it. ETN, since it's a note, it has default risk. ETFs do not. Equities do not have credit risk or default risk. Bonds do. Debt does. Call risk, another bond one, okay? Call risk is in case interest rates go down, the issuer go, oh, I'd rather pay a lower rate. So they will issue a new bond and use that money to call back the old bond. So that's call risk. You're getting your money before you expected it, which is not good. And now, remember, rates have dropped. So now if you're going to reinvest your money that you got back, there's only lower rates available. So it's sort of like reinvestment risk a little bit, but I don't like to say that. I like to say call risk is its own thing. Reinvestment risk, reinvestment risk is for things that pay you. So zero coupons don't have it. But call risk is if they call the bond and you get you have to reinvest it at a lower rate. Prepayment risk, that's really only for mortgage-backed securities. Prepayment risk is for mortgage-backed securities that if a, a homeowner, remember you're getting a monthly income from, if you remember that we should have covered it at some point. A mortgage-backed security means you're buying the loans and you're getting, and whoever invests in it is getting monthly income from the homeowner. Direct, not directly, but there. So prepayment risk is that if all these homeowners start refinancing and buy, paying off their mortgages, you're going to get your money back sooner than you expected. But now usually prepayment risk is when interest rates drop. You own a house, you'll refinance, you'll pay off the old loan. So now this person, the investor, just got their money back. But now the only thing available, again, is lower rates. So just think, rates going up, that's interest rate risk. But rates going down, they have their own risk, reinvestment, call, prepayment risk, stuff like that. Okay, so let's talk about some sort of strategies. Let's talk about buy and hold. Buy and hold, basically you're putting your money in and you're not changing the allocation for good. Obviously people change at some point, but buy and hold, you're buying it and just holding on to it for a very, very long time. Now, that is, a, is gonna be very cost effective. You're not gonna have a lot of tax problems because you're not selling anything. So you're not paying, there's no realized gains really or less. And there's not a lot of commissions and costs incurred because you're buying and holding. The problem here is that you have opportunity risk, okay? Because you may have just picked the wrong things. But over the long haul, it should be fine. Okay, portfolio rebalancing. Let's say you set up a portfolio to be like 25% this, 30% that, whatever it is. Now, over time, some assets go, go grow faster or slower than others. So you're going to be off cue a little bit, off, you know, a little skewed. So what you'll do is you'll rebalance it every quarter or whatever it is. The more you rebalance, the more active it is. But the less you rebalance, the more passive it is. So strategic is setting up the portfolio. And then only when it's off, off kilter, you kind of rebalance to bring everything back to where it was. But now let's bring in this. I don't know if it's going to be in this section. But then there's called tactical. Tactical is where you take those strategic the percentages and then adjust them based on what you think like, oh, like in the pandemic when it started, maybe you got out of the airlines and into tech or maybe less airlines and more tech just to take advantage of what's going on. If you rebalance too often, your costs go up. So rebalancing is pretty cost efficient. But the more you rebalance, the more commissions you have, more transaction costs, stuff like that. Now, buy and hold and systematic rebalancing believe that the markets are efficient. So what does efficient mean? Efficient means that you're not getting a bargain. The price is right, okay? The price that you're paying is the correct price. So they're saying that you can't beat the market. You're just going to buy and hold and or rebalance once in a while when it gets off cue, but you're just going to sit there and ride it. 
because you don't you don't believe in alpha that you don't believe that you can beat the market. So just buy and hold. The other one is indexing where you just basically you're basically not trying to time the market. You're just using a benchmark. You're trying to match the stuff that's in an index, whether it's the S&P 500, the 400, the Russell, the Wilshire, whatever it is, the Dow Jones. You're trying to match that index, match the portfolio and just ride that index. Those are like all more passive strategies. Now, active strategies, like you're trying to beat the market. So there's sector rotation where you're taking, okay, I have a bunch of things in biotech and industrials and transportations, and then I kind of move them all into tech, or I move them all into airlines, or I move them all into something else to take advantage of, of like market trends. So I'm trying to beat the market. Sector rotation is an active strategy. The costs are more, and by buying and selling, okay, you're creating some transaction costs and maybe some tax problems. But you're also going to like look at the cyclical stocks, like when the market's going up, you buy more cyclical stocks. When the market's going down or the economy's going down, you're going to buy more defensive stocks. That's what you're doing. You're rotating into different sectors. So timing risk is a risk that you buy at the wrong time. So I, like me, when I buy stocks, I buy them at the high pretty much consistently. When I buy something, it'll drop. And when I sell it, it'll go up. It's just what it is. So a way to kind of avoid that is dollar cost averaging where you're putting the same amount of money in every time period, every quarter, every month, every year, whatever it is, you're putting the same amount of money in every time. You're not changing it. So what happens is as the price of the security you're buying goes up and down, if it's down, you're going to buy more shares, same money, but more shares. And if it goes up, you're going to use the same money, but you're going to buy less shares. So that gives you, takes timing out of the market because you're putting the same amount of money in every time. And because you're putting in the same amount of money every time, when the stock is lower, you're buying more shares. So you're going to be more bottom heavy on your price. So you should have you should have a lower cost per share than the stock's average. So your personal cost per share should, after dollar cost averaging, be lower than the average. Okay, the other way to get rid of some risk is to hedge. So we can hedge things. On this test, pretty much hedging is options. So if you own a portfolio, let's say you own a stock or two, what you can do is you can buy puts to protect it. So if you own stock at 50, and you can buy a 45 put, even if the stock goes to zero, you still retain the right to sell at a 45, so you don't lose as much, maybe five bucks plus the premium. That's one way to do it. But what if you have a massive portfolio? You have a big portfolio, you can't really just buy, you're not gonna buy a put on every single stock that gets expensive. So what you do is you buy puts or calls on the actual index. You're not getting the shares when you exercise, you're getting cash, so if you have a big portfolio of stocks, what you do is you buy index puts. And, and if the market dropped, you lose money on your portfolio. But the index ops, index puts would rise in value to offset what you're losing on your portfolio. So index options are great to hedge a portfolio. Equity in, Individual equity options are great to protect or hedge against a specific security. Now, currency options. Currency options are what? You're betting on the foreign currencies. There are no options on the U.S. dollar. Remember that. There are no options on the U.S. dollar. So you're betting on foreign currencies to go up or down based on your risk. So if I'm an exporter, I'm worried that the foreign currency will drop because then I'll get less money in their currency. So I will buy puts. So I will buy puts on the foreign currency. So exporters buy puts, EP, remember that. Then an importer, I'm worried that the foreign currency will go up and it will cost me more to buy their goods. So it, as an importer, I'd buy calls. EPIC, ah, EPIC. Exporters by puts, importers by calls. Love it. That'll save your ass on the test. And remember, there are no options on the U.S. dollar. 
Well, that's it for the SIE. Thanks for listening in. If you want more, check me out on YouTube every Tuesday and Thursday night live, 8.30 p.m. Eastern, Capital Advantage Tutoring. Check me out. I'll get you to pass.